Well, if you haven't done so already, please open up your Bibles to the letter of Philemon. You'll find Philemon after Titus, but before Hebrews. It's a little short book, maybe just comprising even just one one page of your Bible. This morning we're going to talk about forgiveness. Before we dig into that, I'd just like to read the letter of Philemon to you. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have confidence, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe, owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now Philemon is a book about forgiveness. And like I mentioned before, it's uh, forgiveness. It's not that word is not even mentioned in the book, and yet we understand that that what Paul is writing to Philemon to do is to forgive. And forgiveness is is an essential characteristic of Christianity. Forgiveness is an essential characteristic of every Christian's life. Not only do you begin the Christian life through the forgiveness that God grants. But then because you live in a world with sinners and you yourself continue to struggle with sin, there's lots of broken relationships in this world. And the only way that those are restored, the only way the body of Christ can be the body of Christ, can function with one another, is that we forgive one another. Because those offenses and those those broken relationships are inevitable in a fallen world. And we live in a fallen world. We live in a world of sin. So I know that each one of you here this morning, in some capacity, in some way, has been deeply hurt by someone else. I I know that, not because I know your particular situation, but because I know you live in the same world I live in. And you live around the same kind of people that I live around. Imperfect. right? And, And sometimes those that intend great harm upon us. Think about some, some deep hurt that you have experienced. Perhaps the betrayal of a best friend, someone you trusted, perhaps even your spouse. Perhaps a person was a complete stranger who, who attacked at you and did untold violence to you, forever changing your life. I, I don't know the specifics you do, but I know that you've experienced deep hurt. Now, what would you do if that person were to come to you 
and to ask for your forgiveness. If they were to walk up and ask for your forgiveness for that deep hurt. And sometimes that hurt has been life transforming, life changing. Are you willing to let it go and to forgive? Are you going to take their sins and wad them up in a ball, in a, prefer, in a metaphorical ball, and cast them into the sea that they might sink to the depth of the sea? Or are you going to do like some people do? They take all those hurts and they form a metaphorical boomerang. You know what a boomerang does? When you throw it, what does it do? It comes back. And you just keep reminding yourself of the hurt and you keep reminding the other person of the hurt and you refuse to forgive. You keep using it as a weapon against them, but it ends up hurting you more than it hurts them. Which analogy do you think better fits God? That which is cast into the sea, never to come back, or the boomerang that keeps coming back? Obvious answer to that. And I'm just going to read to you Micah 7, verses 18 to 19, to kind of set, set this up for us. Micah, the prophet Micah, through the Holy Spirit, says, Who is a God like you? That's a rhetorical question. Right? There's no one like God. But listen to what he says next. Who forgives iniquity? There is no other. God is the God who forgives iniquity. He passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. And he does not hold fast to his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. And he will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. Think, look at that analogy. He will subdue it. Like the very thing that we struggle with, the sin that we struggle with, he will subdue that. He will work in our lives to take that out of us. And then the psalmist, uh, sorry, the Micah talking to, directly to God said, says, and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Think about that. God will take your sins. And if you're a believer in Christ, he has already done this. He takes your sins and he wads them up into a proverbial rock, a proverbial ball, and he throws it in the depths of the sea, never to be brought back again. That's the analogy, the depths of the sea. God forgives Iniquity. God delights in loving kindness. God brings abundant forgiveness. That he would cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Thomas Watson rejoiced in this analogy. And he said, aren't we thankful that, that God treats our sin like the lead that sinks to the bottom instead of the cork that keeps popping up to the top? Right? That's that's the analogy. God takes our sin, throws it in the sea, and it's done, it's dealt with. Ultimately, because Christ paid the price for those sins, it's done. He's not going to bring that back up to you. He's not going to remind you of that sin in the future. What What a blessing. And as a child of God, are you willing to follow his example when it comes to dealing with others? Will you readily Take the sins, the deep hurts that someone has done against you and roll them up into a proverbial ball and cast them into the depths of the sea. So today, today's message and looking at Philemon will help you get there if you're not already there. And if you're already someone who readily forgives, it'll help bolster your readiness to forgive. Through the Apostle Paul's ministry to Onesimus and Philemon, we glean principles that will help us to foster and develop a a lifestyle of forgiveness that glorifies Christ and that helps us to love one another, that fosters brotherly love within the hearts of the saints. As in, to use Paul's language, it refreshes the hearts of the saints. So this morning, I want to walk us through the text and and, and explain some of the highlights. And then we're going to come back at the end and and draw some principles of application for this. Uh, I want you to hear the thrust of Paul's argument. Paul Paul is pleading with Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. So let me just set uh, the the setting for us a little bit since it's been a, a few weeks since we were in Philemon. 
The major players in this book are Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. Paul is the Apostle Paul. Though he doesn't name himself as the Apostle here, that is who he is. He's a, he's a prisoner in Rome, and he is a beloved friend of both Philemon and Onesimus. In fact, he, he led both of them to, to Christ. Philemon is a wealthy Christian who lives in the city of Colossae. His home was the meeting place for the church, and he owned at least one slave, probably other slaves. Um, Paul highly commends and encourages Philemon in verses four to seven. We looked at that previously, and you can you can uh, download that message if you um, weren't here for that. And and so because of that commendation that that uh, Paul gives to Philemon, we know that he was a man who was above reproach. Now in our modern minds. We we have difficulty understanding how a man is above reproach and a slave owner. The book of Philemon doesn't answer that for us. Right? In a future message, I would like to deal with a message that how the Bible views slavery, because it is such a hot topic. I think it's important for us to, to rightly understand that. That's not Philemon. Um, we can't look at the letter of Philemon as either commendation for slavery or a statement against slavery. I will argue that if we understand the message of, of Paul and what he's arguing for, it, it really doesn't, it really kind of erodes the, the, uh, the cruel structure of a master and a slave, right? We'll see some of that, um, the argument there, meaning that he will argue, Paul will argue to Philemon that he is to treat Onesimus as a beloved brother, right? So just that at the outset, know that. Onesimus is the slave. He's the slave of Philemon who ran away. Uh, ran away, I would, I would argue, to, to Rome where he met up with Paul in prison. That we know for sure. From Paul, he heard the gospel and he believed. And he was discipled by Paul. At some point, Paul made the connection with Onesimus that he knew Philemon, that he was a runaway slave. And though Onesimus was very dear to Paul and was ministering to Paul's needs, Paul saw the need to send Onesimus back to Philemon and restore the relationship with Philemon. So that's that's the setting, and and that's the what we come into as we look at beginning at verse eight this morning. Remember, the dominant theme of Philemon is forgiveness. Now Paul begins pleading with Philemon. And, and notice that he takes pains to point out that he's pleading with Philemon, not commanding him. You see in verse 8, he says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. He, he appeals. The word boldness, sometimes translated confidence, refers to that. It's the confidence, confidence to speak or a freedom to speak. Um, it's used in two passages I want to highlight. Well, first one is in Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 4.16 says this, let us, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's Hebrews 4.16. It says, let us therefore draw near with confidence. As we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, are we coming by our own, in our own confidence, with the confidence of our own righteousness? Obviously not. We are coming in the righteousness with confidence in the righteousness of Christ and confidence in the promises of God. Uh, Hebrews 10.35 uses the same word. It says, therefore, do not throw away that confidence of yours, which has a great reward. So that confidence, meaning, meaning the trust in God's word and God's promises. Don't throw that confidence away, that, that boldness. Hang on to that. So boldness refers to a, a confidence that is based in the great promises of God to rescue and help those who turn to him in faith in Jesus Christ. So this, this confidence is not self-generated. It is generated by the promises of God. And notice that he says here, a boldness in Christ in verse 8. I have enough confidence in Christ or boldness in Christ. And, and by this, he is indicating the, the realm of his boldness. It's not in himself. It's not in Paul or Paul's ability to reason or even, even a sense Paul's human responsibilities and authority. He's pointing to, to him, his, that realm of in Christ. 
Uh, likely this phrase is Paul's way of indicating that, that in Christ Paul was an apostle and, and he could rightfully command Philemon to do something. But he, keep in mind that Paul could speak about much boldness about such matters, not just because he was an apostle, but because the Lord Jesus taught much about forgiveness. He would often talk about the critical nature of forgiveness, and we'll, we'll see that more in a minute. But Paul could also speak with boldness because he knew Philemon's character. He knew that if Philemon was in Christ, and Philemon's desire was to honor Christ and to live for Christ's sake. And, and so he knew that, that Philemon would uh, listen. So he would have confidence to issue the command. He would have confidence that that command would actually be listened to. But but Paul says he's not doing that. He could He could have done that. But he doesn't do that. Paul doesn't command it, and he tells us why. In verse 8, he says, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. It's for the sake of love. Now, Paul is still working towards doing what is right. Notice what he says there in verse 8. Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I appeal to you. Notice that phrase, what is proper. That, that's Paul's overall goal. He is writing so that Philemon would do what is proper and fitting. And we'll talk more about what that means in a moment. But it's proper and fitting uh, for Philemon to do with Anisimus. But notice what I want to emphasize here is that Paul is a, his, his approaching Philemon with an appeal instead of command. Um, and and that that is very important. He's he's pleading with Paul for love's sake. And what is he pleading for? He's pleading that he would do what is proper and right. And we'll get into some of the specifics about that. But notice that the word proper there in verse eight, he says, "I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper." That word proper means what is fitting or or what is um, what is the the right thing to do for that person in that setting. Uh, it's interesting that word proper is used, or the same Greek word is used in Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 5, and particularly it's used in verse 4. But just listen as I read Ephesians 5, being at verse 3. But sexual immorality, or any impurity, or greed, must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Now that word proper is a slightly different word in the Greek, but it's a synonym um, that means something similar. But in other words, sexual immorality, greed, or impurity is should never be named among those who call the name of Christ. So that speaks a lot to what's going on in our culture right now, if they would only listen. Verse 4 says, Nor filthiness or foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather of giving thanks. So the coarse jesting, the, the foolish talk, the fil- filthiness are not fitting. It's not proper it, coming out of the mouth of a Christian, right? So the speech that's fitting and proper is that of thanksgiving. That, that's, that's not the only thing, but that's the, what Paul points to in that passage. That's Ephesians 5, verse 4. And he finishes in verse 5 saying, For this you know with certainty that no one, uh, no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So these things are diametrically opposed. So I just draw this, draw this to your attention to help you understand what is proper. There is action that is fitting and proper for a Christian in, in certain circumstances. And that is what Paul is arguing for, to, for Philemon to do with Onesimus. But notice he's not commanding that Philemon do what is proper or fitting, that he pleads. And he's, he tells us why. Look at beginning of verse 9. He says, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Yet for love's sake. And here it's, the word is agape love, that, that sacrificial love, the love which makes a sacrifice for the, for the good of the other person. Um, this love indicates what Paul's approach is here. Keep in mind, Paul could command forgiveness. But he knows that commanding forgiveness will not bring about the greatest love. Now, think about it this way. Most of you have children. If not, you've seen parents interact with children this way. So one child 
grabs a toy away from another child. Doesn't happen in your home, I'm sure. Only happened in mine. Right? So you have a choice. What first response you could have is you could command the offending child to give that back right? and apologize. And then you could command the second child, forgive them for being so rude. Now, when they're young, you kind of have to command because you have to teach them what is right. But when they get a little bit older, how well does that work? Well, they, the child might obey you, probably will obey you. But inside, what is their heart doing? It's defiant as ever. Because that child just thinks that they should have that toy, usually. It's, the better approach, and particularly when they're older, is to appeal. Yes, you have authority as a parent to command them to forgive, to command them to give it back. Right? But for love's sake, to foster that love within them, appealing to them is the more, typically more, it's the approach that's more palatable to them, but also the one that, that helps foster their love. Now they're doing something because they, they see what the right thing is to do and they choose to do it, right? which helps them love their brother or sister and ultimately helps them to love Christ. It's a shepherding opportunity for you as a, as a parent. So in, that, in a similar situation, it's an imperfect uh, illustration, but, but that is the reason why Paul is choosing to appeal to Philemon's love. He wants to take Philemon's love, which he's already commended. He says, you have a great love that's refreshed the hearts of the saints. And he's just basically taking an approach which fans into flame that love. And he's just asking Philemon to apply his love for the brethren, which has refreshed the hearts of the saints, to the slave Onesimus. You know, understand that, that forgiveness is, is something that, that the scriptures speak about a lot. And doing a word search, if you just look up the word forgiven, forgiving, look it up all the different tenses of that, just that word appears over over a hundred times in the Bible. And that doesn't include all of the all the words that, that describe forgiveness with different terms. I mean, forgiveness is just pervasive throughout the scriptures. For example, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 30 to 32, Paul says this. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. In the parallel passage in Colossians, Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14, Paul says, So as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and graciously forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, in both those passages, what is what is Paul doing? He's actually instructing. He's saying, this is the fitting behavior that Christians should follow. He's, he's, not, he's not actually commanding it. He's saying you should do it. But he's taking an approach. He's laying out the behavior that is fitting for a believer to, to have. And, and behavior that does not... Um, is not patterned after this is is sin and and is sin that we need to repent of. <coughs> Excuse me. But I guess the reason I point these things out is that Scripture is full of the what I would call the indicative. It's telling us that we ought to forgive, right? And and there are places you could go to to say, well, yes, the Lord commands us to forgive, but ultimately. Right? Forgiveness comes from your heart. It's a work of God in your heart that allows you to forgive someone else. And hence, Paul appeals to Philemon to do what is proper. And notice the word appeal. He uses it twice in, in, verse, um, um, in verse 9. He says, I'd rather appeal to you. And then the beginning of verse 10, he says, I appeal to you. And that word appeal means to request. It means to plead, to ask. He is uh, appealing to Philemon in, in, in an earnest uh, request 
asking him to do what is proper. And in his pleading, Paul makes mention of his present condition. Notice this. He says, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's reminding Philemon of his present circumstances. He's an old guy, probably in his 60s. That doesn't sound old to me. And there's some of you uh, here this morning who would say 60 is young. But in that time, in Paul's day, 60 was old. People did not have long lifespans during that time. And remember how much Paul had been beaten. How much he had been stoned to death one time, right? And the Lord revived him. He had been through countless shipwrecks and sleepless nights and all this. So he had gone through a lot of stress. So his he was feeling his age, right? And so he was he was mentioning these things to Philemon as a way to help Philemon sympathize with his present situation and to help Philemon be motivated to respond positively to Paul's request. Now, some might say, well, this is, isn't, isn't Paul being manipulative of uh, Philemon? And I would say, no, he's not, because these things are actually true. These are actually true circumstances. Manipulation comes in when you distort the truth to try to, try to, try to twist someone into doing something they wouldn't normally do. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul does want Philemon's sympathy, but, but not just for sympathy's sake but so that he will help motivated to do what is right regarding Onesimus. Now, so notice that Paul pleads with Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. And we see Onesimus mentioned um, in verse 9, uh, sorry, verse 10. And, and he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I begotten in my imprisonment. So it's kind of interesting how Paul lays this out. In, in the Greek, he actually says, I appeal to you for my child whom I have begotten my imprisonment, Onesimus. He kind of leaves that towards the end. Now keep in mind, Onesimus would be standing right before Philemon. Right? So imagine, we don't know how much time has gone by since Onesimus ran away. Right? Paul sends Onesimus back, likely with Tychicus, right? because uh, a runaway slave wouldn't, it wouldn't be safe for a runaway slave to travel by himself. So he likely, Paul sent him with Tychicus with the letter probably to Colossians, that he, the letter that we know as the Colossians, right? and with this letter to Philemon. So Philemon is in it working in his house so one day, and he gets a knock on the door. He opens the door. He sees Tychicus, and then he sees Philemon. I'm mean, sorry, he sees Onesimus. And all, think about all that's running around his head, right? All the hurt. But before he can respond, either Tychicus or Onesimus holds out their hand and provides them with this letter from a friend, the Apostle Paul. Now, when the Apostle Paul, when he's reading this, Philemon reads verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. What is he saying? He's saying that Onesimus has come to know Christ through Paul's ministry in prison. We don't know how. We're not given those details. Right? But somehow, in the providence of God, Onesimus was brought to Paul in prison, heard the gospel, and was saved. And as a result, Paul discipled him. He did what he did for all, anyone who believed. He, he, he takes them and he disciples them and he teaches them in the faith. At some point in time, during, during that time, um, he finds out who really Onesimus is, that he is a runaway slave from Philemon. And so Paul knows what he needs to do. And, and during this time, even Onesimus has been ministering to Paul. Right? Yet Paul knew that he needed to send, Philemon, uh, send Onesimus back to Philemon. So that's the, the kind of setting. But he, he talks about Onesimus this way. First of all, Onesimus is a, a child of God now. So this is a different Onesimus that's standing before Philemon at this moment. He is a, a child of God. And, and Paul says that he's a, he speaks of him as a son. He, he describes himself as a father, having begotten him. Only in the sense that Paul was the agent or the instrument through which the gospel went out to Onesimus and he believed and was saved. 
Now, it's kind of interesting. In those days, uh, there, there was, um, uh, in that culture, there were people called patrons. Okay? And a patron would provide everything for those underneath them. Generals were patrons. They would supply everything that their soldiers needed, which is which is really allowed a lot of the powerful Roman generals to kind of build their own armies. So the, the armies became more loyal to the generals than to Rome, right? And that became a problem, and that, that led to the end of the Republic and eventually the uh, Roman Empire, where you have these great Caesars that rule. That's that's the result of this cultural thing called a patron who a patron would protect and provide for everybody under their care so a slave owner like philemon would be a patron he was responsible for taking care of his own family but also his slaves he, he was responsible for providing everything that they needed right? paul is functioning like a patron to onesimus because onesimus came to faith under his ministry paul is functioning that way he is, he is going the extra route to not only disciple Onesimus, but also to provide him what he needs, which is a letter of introduction, a letter saying that he's a, he's a new man. Paul's doing everything he can to send Onesimus back to his old patron, but also to, to be that patron to kind of uh, provide everything that Onesimus would need into this transition. So he's, he tells Philemon of his new, of how new Onesimus says has changed in his life. He says in verse 10, he's begotten him in his imprisonment. He names him at the end of verse 10, and in, in English it's kind of in the middle, but in the Greek it's at the end, right? So he names it Onesimus, just, just to be clear. And, and look, at, look at how he's described in verse 11, this, this transformation. Who was formerly useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And many commentators have pointed out there's a bit of a play on words. Onesimus was a common name for slaves. The name meant useful. So, which is a good name for a slave, right? Useful. Except that Onesimus wasn't useful. He said he, he was, he for, formerly was useless to you. Now, again, we don't know if this is simply because Onesimus had ran away and therefore was useless to Philemon, or was it that Onesimus was just one of those one of those people that you always had to stay on top of him to get him to do his work, and he just wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it faithfully. Wouldn't do it in a in a way that that uh, that Philemon could even trust him to to do the work that he was told to do. We we don't know, but we do know that in whatever sense he was formerly useless, he was of no good to Philemon, and yet now look how Paul describes him. He is useful both to you and to me. Right? So Paul's saying this man is transformed so that he's, he's been useful to me and now he's also going to be useful to you. There's that a transforming work that's been done. And, and notice he goes further. He says, I have sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart. Now, now what Paul's going to do is he's just saying that, 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 that Onesimus is useful and he's saying this, this man has been very useful so useful that I'm sending you my very heart. In other words, Paul is being clear here. He's not sending Philemon a problem child. Onesimus is now like the the ideal child. He's he's the ideal servant, the ideal slave at this point, because of his willingness to serve for the glory of God. And we we see there at, in verse um, twelve, he describes him as sending my very heart. So Onesimus had become very dear to Paul. And he says in verse 13, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul was in prison for the gospel. And it was in these circumstance that Onesimus heard the gospel and as a result chose voluntarily to serve Paul there. Now prisons in that time were very different than the prisons we have now. The prisons we have now, while they're not Hilton's uh, by any extent, those prisons prisons provide everything that that the that the prisoners need clothing food light even times for exercise but prisons of old weren't like that and even prisons in some countries are still like that today but but prisons at that time prisoners the prisons themselves weren't responsible for providing for the prisoners 
The prisoners had to have their family members or loved ones come provide for them, provide them food, provide them if they needed extra clothing, provide them extra clothing. So it's probably in this way that Onesimus ministered to Paul by going and collecting food in some fashion from believers and bringing that to Paul. It could be that he delivered messages between believers and Paul. Or it's possible that Onesimus even had some type of work or some type of employment. And with that, he was using his earnings to help support Paul. We don't know the details, but we do know the the overall summary of it, that, that Onesimus ministered to Paul. And because of that, Paul and Onesimus became very beloved to one another. And, and so much so that Paul describes Onesimus as sending his very heart. And yet, though Paul wanted to keep Onesimus, he knew that he did not want to do anything to obligate Philemon to, to, to in other words, to do that without his, um, to keep him without his knowledge. And he, he says that. He said, I wish to keep him with me so on your, on your behalf you might minister to me in my, in my imprisonment for the gospel. And then in verse 14, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. So though he, though Onesimus was very dear to Paul, Philemon was also very dear to Paul. He did not want to do anything to offend his brother in Christ, and he wanted to do everything to foster his love. So Paul knew that he had to send Onesimus back, and so that's what he, what he does. He sends Onesimus back uh, to Paul. And, and notice the confidence that Paul has. You know, it's not as if Paul writes this letter, sends it by Tychicus, and kind of floats the idea by Philemon saying, would you forgive him? If so, I'll send him back. Like he sends, he has enough confidence in this appeal that he actually sends Onesimus back, right? Knowing that Philemon will do the right thing. That, that, that's pretty telling of the character of Philemon. And, and notice too, that Paul calls attention to the providence of God, something I mentioned in the introduction, but Look at verse 15. He says, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. Now, Onesimus ran away. That was wrong. And we believe that he actually stole money from Philemon. Probably it was getaway money, money to help uh, fund his trip to Rome. Right? So both those things were wrong. Right? God never ordains, never, never approves of, of that. And yet, God is still in control of all these circumstances so that God superintended the circumstances to bring Onesimus to saving faith. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, for perhaps, Paul doesn't know the mind of God here, but he's saying, perhaps it was for this reason that Onesimus ran away, that he, that he was separated you for a time, that you would have him back forever. Notice that term, forever. And, and, he, and then he, he talks in verse 16, he says, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And in the, in the sense he's saying, he uses the term both in the flesh and in the Lord. What he's saying is Onesimus is going to prove to be a beloved brother in a spiritual sense. That's true because of their connection in Christ. So that's the phrase in the Lord. But in the flesh means in the reality. You're going to see it. You're going to see it finally. I mean, that's what Paul's saying. Onesimus is going to be a beloved brother. He will treat you and serve you like he treats me and has served me. That's what Paul is saying. So that's 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 the highlights of the text. And I know there's details that, that are, you probably have questions about, but I think those are the highlights that help us to draw some principles out about forgiveness. So that's what I want to do at this at this time. First of all, I want you to see that Paul's appeal to, for forgiveness is built upon the gospel. Paul doesn't lay out a theology of forgiveness. Right? So he must have already taught Philemon that. So that that's assumed. Right? But not everybody here this morning might under would, would be in a place to understand forgiveness. And I'm not going to take, we don't have time to, to lay on a full theology of forgiveness this morning. But, but what I want, do want to do is just to say that if you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian this morning, there's no way that you can apply the principles of forgiveness. Right? Truly, because it's the Lord that forgives us and the Lord that enables us to forgive others. 
You cannot truly forgive without actually experiencing the forgiveness of the Lord and the aid of, of God's Spirit within you. And so what I want to say to you this morning is if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, that, that, that Christ is the sacrifice for sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And through Christ, God forgives. That's the only way that God forgive. God, God's not just going to look, look the other way. God's not going to take sin and put it under the proverbial carpet. God actually is righteous and he has to deal with sin. And he deals with sin through his son, Jesus Christ, pouring out the sins of the world upon his son for all who will call upon him. Um, the, the, this recognize that, that Jesus died for sinners to save and redeem sinners. He is the Lord, he is Savior, he is God, and he will redeem anyone and everyone who calls upon his name. And if he, if you call upon his name, he will save you. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he adds this in chapter 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means, means satisfaction. Jesus took the wrath of God for sin. Why would you want to face the, God's wrath for your sin all on your own? You will be crushed by the weight of God's wrath in eternity if you do not turn to Christ for faith, in faith for salvation. He will bring you to the Father. He is at our peace with God. Jesus is the peace, the, the one who stands between God and man and brings us together. So I say all that to say that if you don't know Christ in a personal sense, and you might say, well, I know of Christ. That's not what I'm talking about. Do you know Christ? Is the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you know that if today were the last day of your life, if you were to die, do you have confidence that you would go to heaven? You'd be welcomed to heaven instead of being sent to hell. I'm not asking you what, you, what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. Right? No matter how bad your sins are and no matter how good you think your deeds are, those things do not help you. The only way to the Lord Jesus, to heaven, is by trusting in Him to forgive your sins. And if you experience that forgiveness and have the Holy Spirit within you, then you can forgive others. So first of all, to forgive, we must be Christians ourselves. Having the Holy Spirit living within us. Having experienced the forgiveness of God. Second lesson I want us to take from this is, is this, and that is to be ready to be the bridge that God uses to restore two brothers in Christ. You have Onesimus who gravely sinned against Philemon. Granted, Onesimus was not a believer when that happened, but the offense is still there. Onesimus comes to know Christ. Philemon already knows Christ, but they're separated. The relationship is, is broken and it needs to be restored. Paul steps in the gap and becomes that conduit, that bridge to bring these two brothers in Christ together. So although times are very different, that's still a very valid principle. God may put you in a place where you have two brothers in Christ, two sisters in Christ, who are at odds with one another, and they need a brother or sister to help them bring them together. God may use you in that way. So be on the lookout for that. And notice that, that Paul was risking both relationships when he did this. He was risking his relationship with Onesimus if Philemon didn't forgive. Because he had assured Onesimus that Philemon would forgive him. And he was also risking his friendship with Philemon by pleading with him in such a strong case and sending, sending him back. And, and there's, good, there's good evidence to say that this letter was read before the church. So although a private letter, right, this letter might have also been and probably was read in front of the church. So the church knew that Paul was asking Philemon to do this. That's a little bit risky for a friendship. But Paul had confidence in how Philemon would answer. And although we don't have the answer in the book of Philemon itself, 
The fact that the letter of Philemon is included in the canon of Scripture, it's included in our Bibles, is evidence that Philemon answered in the affirmative. Right? Otherwise, this would not have been this would not have been included, or he would have had some other kind of follow-up about it. Also, another application is this. Trust God to providentially provide opportunities to forgive and to restore relationships. Before Onesimus returned, Philemon had no opportunity to restore that relationship. Right? He, might, he was a godly man. He would have wanted to restore that relationship. Right? But he had no opportunity for that. And that, that, that's going to be like some of you. Some of you have a broken relationship that you want to restore, but the other person doesn't want to. They don't want to do that. And so you, you just have to trust the Lord for the timing on when that, can, when that can occur. You can pray for that to occur. And I, and I think because Onesimus was, was such a, I mean, uh, Philemon was such a godly man that he probably did pray for Onesimus. He did pray that that might be restored. Now, Romans 12, verses 14 and 20 give us some, some help in this regard. Again, from the, from the hand of the Apostle Paul, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. By being of the same mind toward one another, do not be haughty in mind, but associate, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, listen, this is very important. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. That that it insinuates that there's going to be cases where it's not possible. But your instructions are to do everything within your control, within your ability to be at peace with all men. And he continues there. He says, Never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what do you do when, some, when you want to restore a relationship and they don't want to? Right? Maybe you don't even know where they are. But usually in today's day and age, we know where people are. But they just don't want to restore that relationship. They don't want to deal with the situation. So the only thing you could do is pray for them. You could pray for them and ask God for the opportunity to restore that relationship. And then you yourself must deal with your own heart so that you're ready to forgive. Because if you treat that sin like the boomerang and you keep regurgitating that sin in your head, you're going to become a very bitter person. And that bitterness is going to make you a useless person for the kingdom of God. It's going to eat you up. It's going to characterize you. And you will not be useful for the kingdom of God. So to keep that from happening, you have to be ready to forgive. In other words, you're not dwelling on that hurt. You're praying for it. You're praying for the opportunity to forgive. But you're not dwelling on those things. Because dwelling on those things will just create bitterness. Um, and that's disobedience to the Lord. Beloved, the Lord wants us to, to be those who are quick to forgive. Right? And that requires just being ready, asking the Lord for, for help to be ready to forgive. And when, when you do need to forgive someone, think about what Paul's goal was. His goal was that there would be something that, that, that Philemon would do what is proper. So ask yourself, what is the proper thing to do? Right? So we're just going to ask a series of questions to help us, help motivate us to do what is right. Right? I think Philemon knew the right thing. Paul's providing him motivations. He's saying, just, just ask yourself, what is the proper thing to do? If you've been forgiven by God, you know God's forgiveness. So you, you know what it's like to have your sins forgiven. And you know that you didn't earn that forgiveness. And you know your debt, your, your sin against God is far greater than any, any sin that anyone can sin against you. Right? Your, the debt they owe you by comparison to the debt you owed God is, is huge. The debt you owed God was mammoth. You couldn't pay it. So Paul talks about the Christian's obligation to forgive. And we read that from Ephesians 4 and, 
Colossians 3, just as a reminder, you can turn there and read through that. That's Ephesians 4, being at verse 30, and Colossians 3, being at verse 12. And, and notice, too, that note, too, that we are to walk as Jesus walked. How ready was Jesus to forgive? Even people who insulted him, cast insults upon him. And, and what did he say when he's being crucified? Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. We are to be like Christ in this way. It's so vital that if you reach a place where you, where you say that you're not going to forgive, that's a very dangerous place to be. Listen to Jesus' instructions on this. In Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 11, 25, he says, Whenever you stand prayed, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Think about that. That's sobering, isn't it? That we are to forgive so that our Father in heaven would forgive our transgressions. He's not teaching works forgiveness there. He's tying together the fact that if you truly have been forgiven by the Father in heaven, you will forgive your brother on earth. Jesus, in teaching his disciples to pray, mentioned this to them. He says, and pray this way, and forgive us our debts as we what? As we forgive, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Do you pray the Lord's Prayer? Pray those words? Those are sobering words. You start thinking about your own forgiveness in light of your forgiveness of others. Again, he's not teaching works forgiveness. He's teaching that there's a vital connection, an essential connection between your own forgiveness and your willingness to forgive someone else. Uh, look, at, look at this from Matthew 18. I'd like you to, to see it yourself because Jesus actually puts quite a bit of emphasis on this. Matthew chapter 18, beginning of verse 20. Um, actually, beginning of verse 21. So in, in the context of the Lord teaching about church discipline, then Peter says this in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said to him, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my, my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Peter thought he was being generous. By saying seven, I'll, yeah, I'll be generous. Seven, I'll forgive him seven times. What is Jesus' answer? I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. That's the kind of people we're called to be. Forgiving. And, and most of us have patience to forgive. Well, I'll forgive you once. They sin twice, three times. Seven times? I mean, come on, put yourself in Peter's shoes. Right? That's where we'd be. Like We would think we'd be really generous to forgive someone seven times, but Jesus takes it to the max, 70 times seven. And then he goes from there to tell a parable about the unforgiving slave. And you can read it there for yourself. But, but notice the end, right? So you have this slave who was forgiven a huge debt. And then went and tried to collect a smaller debt from another another slave that owed him just a little debt. And when that, that slave asked for mercy, the slave who had been forgiven a lot said, no, no, I'm not going to give you mercy. I demand that you pay right now and threw him in jail. Because of that, look, look at Jesus' response. Verse 32, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he was owed. And my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Pretty sobering words. Again, that's not works forgiveness. That's just Jesus trying to drive home the fact that if you've been forgiven by the Father, you will forgive. doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but you will forgive. Right? And if you ever choose not to forgive, right, then the grounds of the assurance of your salvation are washed out. doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation, 
but you are washing out the assurance of salvation based on Jesus' words. Those are sobering words. So when you need to forgive yourself, need to forgive someone, ask yourself, what's the proper thing to do? What does Jesus want us to do? Secondly, ask yourself, what is the loving thing to do? You know, Paul changed his approach from a command to an appeal for the sake of love. That, that Philemon would do what is loving, not only towards Paul, but also towards Onesimus. So ask yourself, what is the loving thing to do? Now, apply the principle a bit wider. Just ask yourselves, especially if you're forgiving to hurt, to forgive such deep hurt. What is the loving thing to do? What, what actions will, will allow the greatest display of the love of God? We're told, and I think it's true, that you're never more like God than when you forgive. You demonstrate God-like love when you forgive. So ask yourself, what is the loving thing to do? And, and if you're struggling to forgive, just contemplate the love of God and how much he's forgiven you. Thirdly, when you need to forgive someone, ask, ask yourself, what is the useful thing to do? Paul mentions uh, Onesimus being useful. Well, I know that that's, that's Onesimus serving Paul and serving Philemon, but it's a good question to ask yourself. What is most useful to the kingdom of God? What is most useful even in your own life? What's most useful in the other person's life? That they, that, that, that they might serve the Lord, that they might honor him, they might be useful to the kingdom. Because if you choose not to forgive, you become bitter and that embitterment is going to cause you to become unuseful to the kingdom of God. So, again, when you need to forgive someone, having trouble forgiving someone, ask yourself, what is the useful thing to do? Next, ask yourself, what is the good thing to do? And Paul didn't want to compel uh, Philemon's goodness. He wanted Philemon to do what is good out of his own free will. So ask yourself, what is the good thing to do? Um, when facing a situation where you must forgive someone who's hurt you deeply, thinking about what what good you can do to bring glory to God. How can you bring glory to God? Yes, this is related to thinking about love, but these things all tie together. What is the good thing to do? And lastly, what what is the brotherly thing to do? Notice at the end where Paul talks about how how Philemon would receive Onesimus back, not not just as a slave but as a beloved brother in the flesh and in the Lord. So ask yourself, what is the brotherly thing to do? And this is where, particularly amongst Christians, if that other person who has hurt you is a Christian, that is a brother or sister in Christ. What is the brotherly or sisterly thing to do? And that's that's to forgive. To, to forgive and ensure that relationship is not just restored, but, but notice how it's elevated in, in, in this letter of Philemon. Onesimus doesn't just come back and become the useful slave. Right? It seems like he did, he did that, but he did much more than that. He became what? A beloved brother. How is it that someone who's hurt you so much can become so dear to you? It's through the gospel. To understand that, think about how you, though you have offended God greatly, that through Christ you become very dear to him. The Lord changes lives. He changes hearts. Next week we'll give some more illustrations about that. History is full of cases like this where God brings together former enemies and makes them beloved brothers. So in wrapping all these things up for today, Understand that forgiveness is essential to the Christian life. God's forgiveness is essential to start you on the Christian life. And you forgiving others is essential to, to maintaining relationships that honor and glorify God and, and to help foster love, the love of the brethren. As I said before, you are never more like God than when you forgive others. Now, it's not original with me. Many others have said it. But, but in thinking about this too, you are never more like Christ when you intercede for others to bring them together. Right? That's what Christ does. It takes man, it takes God, brings us together. Mm -hmm. I plead with you. 
as the Lord grants you opportunities. And, and even in our body, we're people still struggling with sin. So I know that there's going to be offenses. There's going to be occasions where we offend each other, might not even know it. But I plead with you, as the Lord grants you opportunities, with, and in the strength of the Lord, to do what is proper and fitting, forgive. Do what is loving, forgive. Do what is useful, forgive. Do what is good, forgive. Do what is brotherly, forgive. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you are a God who forgives. And I just ask that you would help us to be people who forgive, who take these things to heart, who are not merely hearers of the word, Lord, but that you would make us doers of the word, that you would help us to apply these things to to some situations in our lives that only which you know about this morning, but, but are difficult to forgive. And I just ask that you would help bring about a great work in each one of our lives today. We celebrate the forgiveness that we have in Christ and we are so ready to forgive others as a way to exalt you and to refresh the hearts of the saints in our local church. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.